One of the first things I noticed, and this might sound funny, but when I lived in Odense, I would find on the streets personal belongings hanging on uh, posts, lampposts, or, or, or bushes or trees. So it was within the uh, level of the eyesight so that people who were looking for this, if they traced their route, could find this. And at first I thought, what is, why are there so many hats and scarves and you know, children's toys everywhere kind of stuck there? And then it was because that's what people do, right? If they find something that someone has lost, they will try to help them as a trust in the community that is not something that will just vanish, but you actually have a chance of finding it. So I found that quite remarkable. <laughs> Hello and welcome to What the Denmark, the show that explains Danish culture from the outside in. Today, we're talking about trust. Around the world, trust in governments and fellow citizens is declining. However, in Denmark, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, it is actually on the rise. But what does it mean when we talk about trust? What are the pros and cons of a high-trust society? And what can other countries learn from the Danish way? Well, to help us answer this and more, we had excellent guests. One is Gert Tingo-Svensson, a professor of comparative politics at Aarhus University and the author of several books on trust. And another is Peter Mullman, the CEO of Trustpilot, a large Danish online company that fosters trust on the internet, whom I visited in their Copenhagen headquarters. And also Kathy Siddiq, who you heard at the beginning of the show. Kathy has a Polish-American upbringing and has now lived in Denmark for many years. She runs Active Action, an organization to help internationals settle in Denmark. So it would probably be good, Josephine, before we get started on this conversation about trust, to sort of define what trust is. When we spoke to Gert, he had this very interesting, uh, well, this rather simple way of explaining it. Trust is all about uh, prediction, expectation. When you do something based on trust, uh, you actually live up to the expectation following a norm. And a norm means rules of the game informally. So basically trust meaning that you know that people will respond in a predictable way and trusting other people will do the right thing. And I mean, one thing is, is, as well is that this sort of, this assumption that, that there is the right thing. So like two people uh, can look at one situation and be like, oh, well, this is clearly the right thing to do. So let's say you're walking on the bus and there's an old lady and there's somebody with a seat. Yeah. And, you know, in certain cultures, you might expect the right thing to do is that the young person gets up and gives up their seat for the old person. In other cultures, that might not be the expectation. I think it's really interesting, this example that you're giving us, because I would understand that most people across the world would think that you should give up the seat for the older person. But many people in Denmark might think that the older person will say if they need help. Mm. So we have a very outspoken trust culture. So if you are struggling, you will say, can you help me? Or mm. do you have a seat? I would say that it's sort of half, half in Denmark. You try to sort of estimate the situation and you will offer the seat. But sometimes people will also be offended because they will think, well, do I look that old or do I look crippled? And you don't want to offend anyone. But I think that trust is really ingrained in Danish society. So, for example, 
even with regards to the way we do our child rearing and we let our children out and about in society, we really trust that other adults and people around us will help our children if there should be a need for that. And we also trust our children to act responsibly and to do the right thing. So, for example, I'm very comfortable with my children going for a cycle ride whenever they want to. And they are, you know, from seven till 14 years of age. And so if they want to go for a cycle ride, I trust them to do the right thing, to be careful when they cycle on the road, but also to look out for cars and so on. Also, I expect the cars around and the people around that if they fall on their bicycle, and it's actually happened to my son once that he fell on his bicycle heading uh, home to a friend, that someone will help them. Mm. And actually, there was sort of a good Samaritan who was around when he fell off his bicycle and hurt himself quite badly. He picked him up and then he got my number and he called me at work and said, I found your son here. He fell and he hurt himself really badly. How can I help? And uh, I basically said, "Okay, I'm far from home. I'm at the office. Thank you so much. Uh, Would you be able to send him home to his friend's mother? Because she's a stay at home mother and she will look after him. And so then I called the mother of the friend and say, Alexander will be coming to you because he's hurt himself on the bicycle. Is that all right? And she was, of course, of course, I'll help. So that's about trust and knowing that you can call on others to help you in those situations. Isn't it? And I think this this concept of like, it is such like a, a wonderful dividend of Denmark to have this this trust, this layer of trust where suddenly interactions like that can happen. Like a complete stranger who's never interacted with you, probably will never interact with you again, has taken time out of their day to help this boy and probably yeah gone out of his way to deliver him to your friend's place. Like there's just stuff like that. You, you almost can't put a price on it. If you sort of were to think of, you know, how that would play out if you didn't have a trustworthy stranger who would help this, then it's either, you know, this element of, you know, control. So my son can't go out cycling because if something goes wrong, we can't let that happen. Or you have to sort of have other aspects of of, of how to sort of avoid that situation happening. Yeah. And we also trust our children to the extent that we know that, for example, if my son is with some friends and something happens to one of them, then he will go and call for help in the right way. And I think the independence that children have from very early on means that they're actually very good at managing difficult situations on their own and doing the right thing for their friends and their surroundings. Mm, they're being given this, yeah, this, this trust that you, you have thoughts, you, you have agency, you might you know, still need help to be told to eat your vegetables but you know we trust you to go out in the world and make the right choices so you also see children all over denmark also in the big cities roaming around on their own and for example the tradition is that if you're bored at home you'll go for a walk and you'll go to some friend's house and ring the doorbell and you'll say are you able to play now and uh, if they are then the kid comes out and they play or if not, then you just move on to the next door. So you basically sort out your own play dates and life to a great extent. Have you watched uh, Stranger Things on Netflix? It's this uh, series where it's set in like the 80s. I mean, it's, it's slightly sort of sci-fi, but I think part of the, the reason it's so popular is this nostalgia for this time in the 1980s where kids had bikes, there were no phones, people cycled around people's houses, knocked on people's doors. And it's sort of 
the rest of the world or a lot of the world has sort of progressed into this digital people on phones. And I'm sure Danish kids do have phones and do play um, in the virtual world, etc. But this idea of you can be in an environment where you can just go out and knock on the door and go see your friends. Exactly. That was one of the main reasons why I wanted to move back to Denmark when I had children, because that freedom is so exceptional mm. to have that. It really grows you as a person and as a child. And I remember actually now I've worked as a journalist in, in South Africa and, and different parts of Africa. You know, the more well-off people in South Africa lived behind big uh, barbed wire and a lot of alarm systems because there were crime problems there. And um, I remember then covering different stories in the townships of South Africa. And the crazy thing was that the children there, they were free to roam and run around and they had more freedom than my children. And I actually felt that sad as it was that many of them didn't have the necessities they needed in life and the education and sometimes the parental support. Still, they had the freedom to roam, but my children didn't because they lived behind big walls. So that freedom, I really hold dear in Denmark. People are well off enough that you don't have the struggles that you might have in other places in the world where you do at least have the freedom. So I, th I think it's it's interesting to, to ask or, or wonder, why is it that Denmark has this high level of trust? If you look at the history of Denmark and the other Nordic countries, one special feature is that uh, we start fighting corruption very early on in 1658 we lose the southern parts of sweden and we have this competition ongoing rivalry around the baltic uh, region and it's about controlling the ships that sail into the baltic sea it's all a mess and the main reason it's all a mess is that the nobility in denmark has a lot of power so they collect taxes they inherit all the big possessions and they are so corrupt and they're useless and lazy and no good. And the first thing uh, Frederick III does is to get rid of the nobility and start hiring people that actually are good at their work, they can actually collect taxes. And when they collect taxes, they actually give <laughs> the money to the state. So there was this nobility in Denmark, lots of power concentrated in an elite few. And the king basically said, we're going to get rid of the nobility And no longer are you going to have this. Yeah, power comes from who you're It was you're not about from. just network anymore and the elites. Yeah. It was about finding the most able people. Most people yeah, and, and in order to have this meritocratic system, you need to then create a system of checks and balances. And so obviously those have evolved over time. But Denmark has had hundreds of years of relatively lots of these sort of democratic institutions that allow people to come to the right consensus of what is the right choice as opposed to it just being oh so and so is my cousin and therefore that's the answer and i think that because of that and because this is something we value so highly in denmark people are absolutely infuriated when our trust is breached mm. in some way and so you've seen that up in the media both in terms of for example britta nilsson who uh, stole from the state coffers actually money that should have gone to handicapped people and and people with other health problems and uh, also with regards to other cultures sometimes coming in and not understanding the importance of the welfare state and trust and supporting 
you know, being part of that by not ripping it off. And that causes a lot of debate in the media. Well, it does. And I think there's, there is this study. It was sort of saying, I think it was in potentially Italy. Well, anyway, they asked this question, which is, if you discover that a family member has received too much of a tax refund, what should you do? And in certain cultures, it was like, okay, well, clearly the right thing to do is to pay back this error because that's the right thing to do. But in other cultures, it was seen as the right thing to do is to do what's best for your family. And if your family has come into some money, then you are doing your family a disservice by putting it back into the system. Now, I think part of that comes from having a non-corrupt system and therefore this belief that the system is fair and therefore it should be extended for everyone. But I can imagine how if you're used to coming into a place where family comes first or the people close to me comes first and the system is run by crooked people who aren't running a fair system, then it is, quote unquote, the right thing to protect those closer to you. Yeah, because if you send the money back, it might just go into the pockets of some corrupt person. Of course, we've had some cases where uh, Denmark has been taken advantage of and also our tax system has been taken advantage of and it's really infuriated and angered people. But generally, we know that if we send that money back, then we know that it goes into our health system. It's curing sick people. Uh, it could be us one day our education system, our roads, our infrastructure that we all benefit from. So there is a, a big social contract in Denmark that we do make sure that we maintain what is ours. And ours, we're talking about the group as a whole, the whole country, the whole nation. And we don't want people to be out of money. We don't want people to be poor because we believe that only by everyone doing well, we will do well mm. ourselves. And I think at this point, it's sort of, interesting perhaps to bring in this concept of, of game theory which is um the classic thing is is the prisoner's dilemma if everybody collaborates everyone is better but if you're in a cheating situation then the the rational thing to do is to cheat and if one person cheats the next person cheats the next person cheats the next person cheats and soon you're in a cheating environment where no one contributes collectively and <laughs> things just go wrong basically that that's yeah. the start of a very very corrupt community mm. but a space where you know that in order to actually manage or right yourself and your family you need to participate in the corruption which is very sad and the interesting thing is how do you break a vicious cycle like that well it is and i think one situation which i think peter from from trust pilot spoke about was the beginnings of online transactions there was this sort of wild west mentality around online transactions um, and he said that the three things that you need for people to to trust each other are identity incentives and enforcement i think the airbnb or the uber example are actually the the best examples would you drive in a stranger's car if you just met them in person and saw them Mm. and maybe had a conversation with them. I wouldn't. Mm. Like, I, I mean, in fact, like that's what most people tell their kids, like they should never do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, but if you can read that this person has done so 21,573 times, mm -hmm. and that on average people are satisfied with, with a 4.98 out of 5, mm. 
and that if there is a bad actor on this platform, it is enforced and that this person is highly incentivized to give you a good trip also. Mm-hmm. And it works out, so I have information, um, there is the incentive, mm-hmm. uh, and there is the enforcement. So it's really interesting with this virtual reality that actually exists a bit like a country in its own right, mm. which is actually what the internet to an extent is, that you need the same kind of setup just in the virtual world for it to work really well. Mm. And I think it's just the, the, the big thing is this non-corruptible third party, the adjudicator that can say like, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, and and not, oh, we're just going to partner on this particular side or whatever. Exactly. So did he explain why he came up with it and whether it had something to do with um, with his Danish background? <laughs> he, did, he did, actually. Um, well, I mean, the, the initial impetus for it was his mo- he wanted his mom to be able to buy something online. And he wanted to be able to, it, like, he was a bit of a techie. So he kind of like, he'd like already making websites and he actually made this this sort of, e-commerce store and he wanted to do something that his mom would be easy enough for her to say okay I trust this thing to do it his view on trust is that you need to sort of show the good and the bad and so if you're a a company um, you should be getting thousands and thousands and thousands of all your customers interactions good and bad because that is way more trustworthy than just seeing a handful of five-star reviews that say oh this company's so great this company's so great and so this idea of like transparency coming through with regards to him being danish because this was the obvious question i think you know the biggest trust company in the world is from denmark the phrase that he had was a fish can't see water but it's so ingrained in like what he thinks are the fundamentals of how the world should work that of course we'll build a company that does this and of course we'll do these things as opposed to for example other companies that also are sort of in this sort of online review space where they'll allow businesses to modify their content. So they'll say, oh, like this is the best review, et cetera, which again might make sense if you're from a, a different culture of saying, well, obviously you need to put your best foot forward. Uh, you need to display your best version of yourself. For him, it was like, well, no, the, the, the right thing to do is the thing that builds trust. Exactly. So you don't actually want um, a perfect picture of yourself on Trustpilot because that would actually be untrustworthy to an extent. You want the real picture of a team that is trying to do their very best to do the right thing and be the best at what they do. Mm. And I think, you know, consumers are not idiots. <laughs> like, like if you see something which is 100 five-star reviews, you're going to be like, well, something's up. No one is picture perfect and there will always be issues, but actually you showing that you are doing your very best to be your best is actually much more compelling. I had an example with a friend recently who's just visited Copenhagen. I went to see where he's staying and he was like, I need to go get some dinner. And I was like, so I was saying, I'll leave you tonight. You go get your dinner. He's like, do you want to get any cash out? I was like, no, no, everywhere, everywhere takes card. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he goes to, he goes to this kebab shop to get a kebab, uh, gets his card out, and the kebab shop says, sorry, we, we don't take card. And he was like, oh, my God, what? And there was no ATMs around. And he was like, oh, gosh, okay. And the kebab shop owner just goes, are you from around here? And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm just sort of staying around the corner for a few days. And the guy goes, okay, well, here's your kebab. Just come, come, come in tomorrow when you've got the money and pay me then. And my friend was like, really? 
I think he's had a lovely trip to Denmark, but honestly, that experience is, I, I think, the highlight of his trip. Is Groundbreaking. Like just, just like being given, yeah, someone just trusting. And then the next day he comes and sees me. I send mobile pay to the kebab uh, shop and you know, pay for it and everything's fine. But he, he honestly, he was just like amazed that this but thing happened. I think happened. that's yeah. really interesting, Sam, because basically when people experience that others trust them, then you live up to it mm. because you want to respond to trust with being trustworthy i think mm. yeah i mean that's exactly what it's all about that uh, you can actually measure that when you have this successful social interaction besides that you actually earn money by saving time then you also feel better and uh, there's a famous um, american scientist called paul sack he has measured how the body releases oxytocin so if same if you buy a kebab in this way this social interaction you also have with this uh, owner actually means that uh, you both release oxytocin mm. in your body when you succeed. So you get this wow effect and you keep on cooperating in the future. So next time you're going to go buy a kebab, you might go to the same mm-hmm. place. Yeah, <laughs> A rush of happiness. I think oxytocin is also what you hear that um, pregnant people get or when you're about to give birth and this oxytocin happiness hormone come through you so actually it's it's very important to our well-being you sort of get it? this glow this happiness glow yeah and it, it gets yeah. you through tough times as well so obviously your friend felt quite stressed because he was keen to be able to pay for his kebab yeah but actually he walked away very happy because he was full of oxytocin in the end <laughs> the other thing that was shocking for me And I remember this exactly. I was in Odin, so I was walking to meet a friend and I walked to the cafe and there were, I think there were probably about eight baby carriages outside and it was cold. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. It's a cafe that really supports mothers and and young kids. And I walked in and there were no babies. There was a group of young ladies. And I think it was probably a a meeting of the moms. Um, And I thought, where are the kids? And I remember that I was thinking, can't be in those baby carriages it's just not possible because for me living in the united states as a child and growing up in the united states it's a completely different reality you would never put baby carriage with a baby outside of a restaurant it's just irresponsible right and so i remember i came back and i was just appalled and we had a long discussion with my husband about this and he said what this is totally normal this is you know that's what we do here And then if you flash forward a few years, um, it's exactly what we did with our own daughter. So I was trying to get my head around this, uh, people leaving the pram outside. This Danish woman in America got arrested. Did you hear about this? Yeah. In, so in New York. In New York. A cafe. Yeah. Waiters and waitresses went over to the table and told them, you know, bring your baby inside. And they were pretty nonchalant about it. They said, well, you know... Our baby's from Denmark. She's used to the cold. We were sitting there, and uh, she was in there with her boyfriend, and they had the baby out right out here uh, by the wall. It was freezing cold that night, and we were there for about two and a half hours. She could not convince uh, the American police and the American authorities in New York that this is legal in Denmark. They wouldn't believe her. Legal, let alone normal. Yeah. The Danish way of looking at it is, if someone were to ask, why would you leave the pram outside with your baby? When it would be, why not? And then if someone were to say, well, because someone might steal your baby, you would say, why? Why would anyone yeah. do that? It would just be such... 
it's a weird compute. scenario that you don't connect with it yeah. as a Dane. So I was thinking like if you are at home, you might put your pram in the private garden. You might be like, okay, well, that's fine because no one's going to come into it. Then maybe you live in like a shared place where there's a shared garden. You say, well, you know, I, I know everyone here. No one's going to do anything. You know, no one's going to come and steal this baby. So you put it there. And I guess it's just Denmark must feel like an extended shared area where you kind of know people enough that you're like, okay, well, no one would do that. Whereas if you're in another scenario where people are perhaps a bit different or you don't expect people, then you just wouldn't even risk it. You wouldn't consider it. How does one build trust if they meet strangers for the first time? That's a really good question, isn't it? Because if you come from two different cultures, it's difficult. In Denmark, of course, we take it for granted because you know that the culture is so ingrained that you default is that you can trust other people around you. But if they act a bit differently, they look a bit differently, then you immediately might be on alert. And so how do we best create trust between two strangers that are not culturally the same? That's a big question. Mm. I think number one is smile. Everyone loves a smile. It's a very trusting thing to do. Yes, but, uh, yeah. and, and that's important <laughs> because sometimes you fear smiling because you might be taken advantage of. Mm. But actually, I think you're totally right. Smiling is really, really important. Mm. And then maybe asking questions because if you're not sure about something, the moment you ask people's help, they generally want to help. Mm. So we were talking about in, in Denmark, so I think this this idea of are you in a collaborating environment or are you in a cheating environment? And I think in the international ranking of trusting societies, uh, Denmark, I think, is still number one. On the corruption aspect, it's now gone down to number four from number one. But I think there's a sort of a separate trust survey, trust survey, yes. which there, and I think Denmark still might be number one there. Going back to this initial idea of Gert of predictability, expectations, like I might not know you, but you are behaving in a way that I would predict you would behave, is to basically build in some interactions that demonstrate that you can behave predictably. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned the this thing about time coming on time, because Danes are very punctual. And so if you want to build trust with Danes, don't show up an hour late. In some cultures, you say a time, but it's flexible. Mm -hmm. In Denmark, it's not flexible. When you say four o'clock, it's four o'clock. Mm. It's not 20 past four. Then you already seem as untrustworthy or unpredictable mm -hmm. if you're not on time. So that's a good place to start. Be punctual. It, be punctual. Yeah, because it's, um, it's especially at the beginning, two strangers meeting people, interacting for the first time. Those, those early interactions are really important. And if something as obvious as, well, when someone says six, they obviously mean to come at 6.30. Like, like in, in England. In England, you want to be a little bit late because otherwise, you know, it, it's it might you might be inconveniencing people if yeah. they're not quite ready when you arrive. Yeah, they also have the, this 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 term called fashionably late. Yeah, which arrive is, fashionably, fashionably late. late, which means you you like you don't want to be the first one to a party. Like you want to you want to sort of come a little bit later. And so there, so in England, if someone says come for six, you might come at like quarter past six, twenty past six. Um, if you're in yeah other cultures where they say come for our barbecue at 4 p.m. Um, really, that might mean we say 4 p.m. because people will really start coming at 6 p.m., which means that the party will only really start going at 8 p.m. And so you'd, if you saw come at 4 p.m., really, you shouldn't really get going until like, you know, 5, 30, 6 o'clock. Uh, and I can imagine if you do that in Denmark, suddenly you're saying, well, I've sort of 
lost trust that you can do these simple things. And that can really, I think, you know, set you off on this, this path of, okay, well, maybe we don't trust this person because they look a bit funny and they don't turn up on time. Exactly. And it might also be, is there a culture for bringing something? For example, mm. are you expected to bring a bottle or some flowers mm -hmm. or what is the kutum in, in Denmark? And, the the what, sorry? The kutum. 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 Uh, what is the uh, custom in Denmark, mm. you'd say? Yeah. And the custom in Denmark might be that you bring a bottle or you bring some flowers or a little gift for the host. But that might not be the case in other cultures. For example, in South Africa, where we were um, for, for many years, you'd bring your own meat for the barbecue. That would be custom there. And, uh, you know, of course, maybe you might bring a, a, a bottle of wine as well. But you know, you probably wouldn't bring flowers. Whereas mm. if you brought your own meat for the party in Denmark, that would be very odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then learning the language as well is a really yeah. good thing, even if it's just a few words that sort of shows that you're really keen to understand the Danish culture. That that makes a big difference. People suddenly realize, okay, here's somebody who wants to understand us. I definitely find that because I can sort of roll out a little bit of Danish and suddenly I do feel the vibe change a bit from being like, Even if we then switch back to English to speak properly, I can sort of just like drop in a bit of Danish and people are like, oh, okay, all right. You're sort of, you know, it's always a bit of like, oh, well done. Like, all right, you're going for it. Yeah, you're um, making an effort yeah. to understand us. Then yeah. we think that you are trustworthy. Well, it is. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's good. Yeah, because you are, you are making an effort to, to sort of learn about this other place. So, um, yeah, I think at any time that even if you, you aren't yet, you're only visiting, saying, oh, I heard that. Denmark used to do this or whatever, whatever. Um, those are quite nice ways of, of you know, showing an interest and a way to you know, build trust. If you're taking an interest in someone else's life or in someone else's country, it's a great way to, to demonstrate that. Going into this sort of game theory world, if you are in a cooperative uh, game or a cooperative scenario and somebody cheats, then that is really bad behavior. And so, it's, as you say, it's, it's sort of really heavily punished. Whereas if you're in a, a cheating environment or one where sometimes people collaborate, sometimes they cheat, let's say that you're doing uh, a transaction and someone runs away with the deposit. But okay, well, you know, it stuff like this happens. Whereas in Denmark, it's like, no, this, this shouldn't happen. And we're really going to go out of our way to you know, point it out and, and sort of shame this. Yeah, and if you look at the companies that do the very best in Denmark, it's often built on trust. You mm. trust that the employees will do their very best. You trust that they are experts in the area they work within. And therefore, you very much lead from the back, meaning that you allow people to excel on their own and to pave the way. And you just ensure that they have the right tools to do so and the support to do so. It's totally trust-based. And I think this is really where you start to see this, this, this trust dividend of, okay, well, now we don't necessarily need so many meetings. We don't need so many checks and balances because we can just say, well, just come to work and get on with it. Yes, we'll have some checks to make sure that people aren't, in the case of um, Britta Nielsen, you know, now there are going to be checks. You know, I assume there are additional checks when money is being dispersed from the government. But by and large, I imagine there are fewer checks Uh, and in general, in Denmark, when people are doing work compared to other places where you can't just trust that people will, will get on with it. 
I collaborate with people from different countries and we agree on a price, for example, when they're doing a workshop for me and I send them a contract, we both sign it and it's totally fine. If I'm working with Danes, this would never happen. There's an email where you might say like, as we agreed to da da da, and it's very casual and that's the agreement and that's right. that. So I think for us as internationals, it's also interesting to be able to juggle this, right? Where the trust is different when we come from different countries and then how do we accommodate people that we work with in different ways as well. So I, that part of it is, is very, very interesting. I remember when I first moved to the UK, I think it might still be the same, but um, I went into a bank I needed an account and I was so surprised because people were sitting behind a big sort of glass wall. They were protected from you. So this idea that people would be violent towards the the people working there seemed really, really odd to me. Obviously, you were maybe also worried about robberies, but generally the fact that that you had to protect someone from the other that way that really yeah. uh, surprised me well I, i think i had the the opposite example uh or the opposite scenario where we went to uh went to watch the ballet a few weeks ago and uh you just sort of walked walked right in um there was some security but like yeah me and my girlfriend walked in no one checked our rucksacks yeah we went in sat down and then just before the ballet was about to start everyone start everyone stood up so what's going on here um and then in walks the queen The Queen of Denmark just came and walked in. She didn't wave anyone. She just went in. She had a little entourage, came and sat down. And then like the, the Queen walked about you know, five meters away from me. And in theory, I could have brought a gun or, you know, I could have brought anything. And there was, there was no security check. Like if in, in other places, I would totally imagine they would at least check your rucksack, you know, even just tokenistically. But here there was like an event. The Queen of Denmark's coming. She's a frail old lady. And no checks were done. Like, and everyone just comes in. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I guess this is what potentially comes to the downsides of trust is that it can seem that you're being a bit naive. And I think there might not necessarily be, like if you're in a trusting environment, then you know, quote unquote, the right thing to do is to trust. But if the Queen of Denmark was to go and do a state visit in a low trust environment and just assume that, okay, well, we're not going to do any security checks and something bad could happen. And so I think it's interesting sort of looking at what are the downsides of trust. If you go into a cheating environment, you can get taken advantage of. Exactly. And and that is a very fine balance. And it would be so sad if we suddenly had to veer to the untrusting mm. side, because the whole society is built around trust. And as you mentioned, we save a lot of money mm -hmm. um, and produce a lot of very innovative and um effective uh, companies because of the way that we trust each other. So there's a lot of things we don't have to worry about that you'd worry about abroad. But I think a really fun example where maybe um, there was too much trust and now I'm actually using Norway as an example because they're very similar to Denmark. So you had Edvard Munch, the very famous painter's scream painting, being literally just taken off the wall in the gallery and being taken away by thieves. And everyone thought that someone obviously knew what they were doing when they took it off. There was no, I mean, basically it was taken very easily. And yeah. uh, it's because everyone trusted that it oh. must be someone working there. Here are some, <laughs> here are some, here are some guys in a boiler suit 
They must, yeah, they must be, yeah, they must work there, yeah. Authorities say two or three men burst into the Monk Museum in Oslo in broad daylight and took the paintings as visitors watched. He went towards the Madonna painting and he grabbed that off the wall and uh, he kind of, he started banging it against the wall and against the ground. He then saw the scream and ran towards that and grabbed that off the wall. The flip side of that is, okay, well, in order to protect against people cheating the system in this way, every painting has to have a security guard next to it or every painting has to have um you know have to pay to install this big you know protective gear around each of the, the paintings or we're going to have to not allow the public up close to this to such a nice painting and you know the aggregate of that really does add up to taking the benefits out of just being able to enjoy society and be able to live and and I was really struck by what, what Gert said about the enemy of trust is control uh, and this idea of controlling people and putting more checks and balances and checklists and do this and are you doing this and can you record what you're doing this? All these sorts of things which really, A, they take up a lot of time. Like the amount of teachers I know who talk about, I can't actually go in the class and teach. I have to spend all my time filling out forms. Like that is an, a symptom, I think, of being in a low trust system. Now, of course, it might be the right thing to do because you might be dealing with you know, vulnerable people and there have been some bad things happening and you need to have these protections in place. But it's just to say that the, the implications of it are not just the protection side of it, but also people's experiences do diminish when they are controlled in that way. Yeah, and we don't want to be in a situation where in our nursing homes or in our hospitals that the nurses or the um, social workers and staff, they spend all their time filling in forms. Because what we really want is that they do what their job is, which is to look after other people and be there to to give them care and comfort. So, uh, so that is a very difficult debate. And I think we're struggling with that in Denmark as well as in many other countries. We want to make sure that we free up as much of the staff's time to be hands-on with the people uh, that they actually should be helping. Mm. I think the, the other aspect of this perhaps downside of trust is a an argument often given by libertarians and this idea of if you are really trusting to other people or let's say the state then that leads to people not exercising critical thought or being complicit in the case of the Edward Munch painting being taken people just trusted that the right thing was happening and then a bad outcome arose the painting got stolen I think it was found again by oh it was found again Okay. Thank goodness. Um, but th- th- this idea of, oh, if you're in a trusting situation and you know somebody seems authoritative enough, people just switch off their, their critical part of their brain and they just say, okay, that's fine. And if you get the wrong person at the, you know, at the head of the ship who suddenly starts saying, this is the way we're going to do it and people are just trusting, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Suddenly you end up in these, these bad situations. So I thought that that's quite an interesting counter to why you shouldn't have a high trust society. Exactly. And I, I think that you have that issue. And um, if it's so ingrained in you, you might also find that as a Danes, when you go abroad, you're really taken advantage of because people do uh, mistake your trust for naivety and maybe even stupidity. We um, met quite a lot of, of, uh, of Danes abroad who'd lived, for example, in, in Africa that were taken advantage of where um, they might think, okay, we really want to help the people around us. So they would pay for um, the schooling of their staff's children in the houses. 
and they would basically they would pay them better than maybe they were paid otherwise with the some of the um, the families from the country and really sort of try to create a nice space and environment that looked a little bit like what you would have in Denmark to bring them up to that equal level that our culture want everyone to be on. But what would happen was that actually it was taken advantage of. Things were being stolen from them. There was also points where you had the Danish family come back after Christmas holiday, all their clothes was gone. Uh, all their things had been stolen by the people they trusted to look after the house. Interesting. And, and this, this, you think the theory, this came about because it was seen as a sign of weakness of we've got a weak boss here and so we can take advantage of them. Yes. And, and maybe you just wouldn't have given them access to mm. what they would was were given access to. You might have made sure you knew their whole family, extended family, you mm-hmm. knew where they lived and all of that because you would do your checks because you wouldn't just trust they would do the right thing. Yeah. But these families were really cheated and mistreated by these people because they thought that, goodness, they're naive. I'm just going to take advantage of what I can. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they didn't know that maybe these... Danish people could actually really help their children in the long term to get education, that mm. they could employ them in the long term if they gave back trust and they mm. um, appreciated the trust that they were in- given. Instead, they thought, how can I milk this as much as possible while I'm in it? And so these poor people would come back to houses with no furniture left, with no clothes left with no staff left because they'd taken everything and they'd work together. So it would be security guard working with nannies that had looked after their children, which is like even worse, that had been working with the gardener and so on. Yeah. Oh, it's really sad, isn't it? Yeah, that is sad. But yeah. that is, and, and if they had handled it differently, then, and, and not been as trusting and maybe thought more carefully about the way um, the society was working, and the rules of checking up on people's credentials and so on, maybe it wouldn't have happened to them. So it's interesting then, how how does one or how does a society become more trusting? So I think Denmark has done, well, it clearly has, has done a very good job of this. And I think obviously there was sort of the 400 years ago, this sort of diffusion of, of, uh, of power from the elites to the people and therefore these institutions that have been building up one thing which seems to be quite prominent in denmark is this uh the the the, the, the voluntary associations um, which is again is basically just ways for people gr- groups of people to come together and, and practice democracy in a sort of very grand way of painting it you know they have to come together and make decisions and compromise and things like that and i imagine interact with people from different backgrounds and that, that sort of seems to be a way of practicing that you can trust strangers or you can trust people that you that you don't know i suppose it's a microcosm for that so whereas the society is um, the macrocosm for for that this is our microcosm where we practice it in small groups of people and so for example if it's your bathing club um, then you will together make sure that you look after the economy of the bathing club for example if you have a bridge or something that you need to maintain everybody pays money into an account and someone manages the account um, there would be different rules about w- who uses a bridge when or when do you have your barbecue party or various other rules that could be built by you 
Um, and there, of course, it's also totally trust-based and it will be a variety of people. It's not your friends. It's not your family. It could be just a variety of people who uh, are passionate about the same thing or who have the same hobby. Yeah. And I think this, um, you know, what can other countries do to be, to get this level of trust is, you know, one of those things is encourage more or facilitate more people to be able to form these microcosms of trust where they can to instigate trust across millions and millions and millions of people is really difficult. Den Denmark has sort of been able to do it, but a you know, policy of, of improving trust is to say, okay, we're going to empower more people to get together and to just practice this aspect of trust. So suddenly it's, it might be, you know, 10 people coming together and they they learn to trust and that sort of helps engender it it'll take a long time but those are the sorts of things to do versus a pushback to i don't know people being very individualistic or, or not interacting with with other people in those ways creating a culture of trust means that people do things not because their incentive plan says they need to do it, not because their mm. manager says they need to do it, but because it makes sense. And that ultimately creates better outcomes. I think we as humans, we, we, uh, we recognize trust when we see it and we embrace it without any need of guidance. So it's been really, really interesting to talk about trust today. And for me, I mean, I've obviously taken it for granted living in a trust society for all those years. But uh, Gert really uh, brought it to life to me and uh, brought some new perspectives to it. I thought Kathy was great too, with her experiences of coming to Denmark and seeing trust in a whole new way. And yeah, thanks also to Peter uh, at Trustpilot. Very nice to let me come around and, uh, and have a little chat with him. Thank you so much to Guldsmiddel Hotel, Eco Hotels, for hosting us again. And uh, as always, you can catch us on whatthedenmark.com, follow us on Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend and consider giving us a rating or review. Um, it's really, really helpful when you do that. And make sure to sign up to Sam's super cool newsletter. I love reading that. Oh, yes, we have the newsletter on Friday mornings. Yes, you can also sign up for that. <laughs> All right, be safe. Be snaggers. All those things. <laughs>